When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, and electronic dance music, and now heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Today, Nate welcomes Kelifa Sane to discuss his book, Major Labels, A History of Popular Music in Seven Genres. Email us at letitrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today we're joined by Kelly Fasane, the author of Major Labels, a history of popular music in seven genres, rock, R&B, country, punk, hip-hop, dance, and pop. Kelifa, welcome to the show. So happy to be here. Cool. So you say that this book is a defense of genres, that it's the names we give communities of musicians and listeners. Tell us about that. Yeah. Well, so, you know, when I was working on this book, uh, part of the idea from it is that I would often hear when people are talking about music, people having unkind things to say about genres, right? In discussions about music, uh, genres are often the bad guy, right? The, the genre is the little box that they p- try to place you in as a listener or as, as a musician and really imaginative musicians. Well, what do we say about them? We say they transcend genre, you know, really thoughtful listeners. What do we say? They, we say they listen to all kinds of music. They're not just hemmed in by genre. And so, you know, that that kind of got me thinking about what genres are and how they work. And and the, the, the working definition that I arrived at is that in popular music, which is such a, a social art form, a genre tends to function as a community, a community of musicians and listeners. Um, you know, often it's kind of an imaginary community. Maybe you're in your bedroom and you're imagining all those other metalheads that like some of those same metal bands. But nonetheless, there is something communal about this idea of a genre. And I think if we think about a genre 
as a community, then maybe it gets a little easier to see the upsides as well as the downsides of genres. In other words, we as humans, as music listeners, as people, we love being part of a community. It gives us a sense of intimacy. And at the same time, sometimes we get annoyed or frustrated with our communities. And sometimes we love complaining about our communities or rebelling against our communities or breaking out of our communities. And so, you know, I see music as, 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 as genres as communal in both of those senses. And I think, you know, the story I try to tell in the book about what happened in the last 50 years, basically from the 70s onward in popular music, is a series of, of fracturings and comings together. In other words, people, these musical communities and the, the seven genres that I talk about, people are constantly saying, well, who's in and who's out? How do I get to be a member? How do I stop following these rules? I, I argue that even in the context of popular music, when we talk about rebellion, we talk about a country singer saying, I, I'm not going to use Nashville prose to record my album. I'm going to use my touring band, right? That is in part an act of rebellion against the country music establishment, but it's only legible as an act of rebellion if that musician is part of the country music establishment. Often being part of a musical tradition or a musical community is what makes it possible to be rebellious. And of course, rebelliousness is one of the qualities that many of us love in music. Absolutely. And so we've got seven genres to cover. I'm going to try to be disciplined. I want to touch on each of them, although honestly, I could easily spend seven weeks on this book. It's it's a great pocket history of the last oh, 50 thanks. years, which is kind of undercovered. I mean, I've done a lot of stuff from, you know, the beginning of the 20th century to the three quarter mark or whatever. But very rarely do I get to do 1970 to 2022. So this is this is a fun one. But let's dive in. Let's talk about rock. Some shots across the bow here for our our old uh -oh. mainstream. So I'm gonna I'm gonna throw a quote at you and then let you let you explain it. Rock and roll seems to have become repertory music, a new great American songbook for Americans who don't much care for the old great American songbook. Elaborate. <laughs> well, you know, there's something very traditional about rock and roll. If you meet someone today in 2022 and you ask them what music they listen to, and they say that you know they're a fan of rock music you know, it's pretty likely that they're pretty into some of the same bands that someone might have been into half a century ago, right? Like, they probably like the Rolling Stones and Led Zeppelin and the Beatles and, you know, maybe Pink Floyd. And, you know, maybe they like some newer bands as well. But you'd have to be pretty strange to be a rock and roll fan who loved you know, the killers and hated the Rolling Stones and the Beatles, right? There, there is a, a traditionalism of it, a sense that not necessarily that the music has gone downhill, but that something really great happened in the 1960s and 1970s, and that many modern bands, even if they're doing something slightly different, have some amount of reverence for that era. And, and, in, some, and in some sense, it's trying to recreate some of the energy of that era. So I think it's become, I think rock and roll has become of, of the major genres, arguably the most traditional. You look, at, you look at the expectation for a rock and roll band in 2022, it's like the lineup is even still kind of the same, right? You're expecting that there'd be like a drummer and a bass player, a guitarist or two, maybe someone on keyboards and a lead singer, like, that that stays pretty constant. Whereas in country music, you know, they're always changing their mind about whether or not you should have a fiddle or, you know, are we allowed to have drums? Are we allowed to have keyboards? You know, there's much more of a constant negotiation about what country music is supposed to sound like. I think with rock and roll, 
we have a sense that we kind of know what it's supposed to sound like. And I think, I think if you played, you know, 20 or 50 most popular rock records of the last couple of years, if you went back in time and played them to, to a rock listener in the early, early 1970s, they'd probably be surprised by how familiar a lot of it sounded. You know, back then there was this idea, you know, that was also the dawn of progressive rock, right? And there's this idea that like rock and roll, the future of rock and roll was like going to be way out in space. And there's going to be like album long songs and they're going to be drawn from classical music and complicated stage designs and really intense mythology, right? There's this idea that like, oh, there's actually going to be progress in music. And in the book, I compare that to someone like Bruce Springsteen, who comes out in the early 70s. And his whole thing is that he's already a throwback. The, the, like when Bruce Springsteen comes out, Rolling Stone is writing about him that, oh, he's this guy. He's cool, but he's kind of doing this like sort of old fashioned rock and roll. And, and Bruce Springsteen turned turned out to be right that in rock and roll, the future um, belong, belonged to the most retro performers. Excellent. And I feel like you've encapsulated the whole genre so I can throw a curveball at you. Um, I love curveballs. Because <laughs> uh, you reveal a fondness for black metal in here. And I, I had the same oh, yeah. thing um, uh, when I discovered it pretty late around 1999 when the when the um, Lords of Chaos book came out. And I was just, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. I could, you know, it was obvious something was going on. But um, actually, Steph tells me it's time to cue. So we'll hear our first song and then I'm going to hit you with my question about Burzum. So All brace right. yourself. Well, let's hear Beyonce's Irresistible first, and then we'll come back. And see if she's home Oops, I bet you thought that I didn't know What did you think I was putting you off and that was Beyonce's Irreplaceable, my bad, when I called it Irresistible before, but I'm a newbie at Beyonce, and I gotta say, you actually got me to listen to her second album, and it's kicking, but but we'll get to that in Dude. R&B. But Burzum, you say, yes. Burzum is the infamous uh, black metal band headed up by Varg Vikernes, a convicted murderer who's done his time yeah. and come out reformed as a outspoken Nazi, so yay uh, the Norwegian prison system there. But um, by listening to Burzum, you become at least for a time the kind of person who listens to Burzum. Is it really that contagious? Well, I mean, I think that's part of the thrill and sometimes the uncomfortable thrill of listening to music is that, you know, because it happens in real time, because a song takes as long as it takes to get to the end, while it's happening, you're you're in there somehow, right? I think of that scene. Is it the film Office Space, which starts with the the white guy in the car, like uh, oh yeah, along to gangster rap, um, yep. right? And that's part of the thrill of like listening to hip hop is like oh you're it's this first person music and you are that person. And so you know if you are someone who's perverse enough to make the choice to listen to a band like Burzum which is a band that's connected to so much like hate and evil and chaos. Like while you're listening to the, to the record for as long as it takes, you've got to somehow find a way to sit in that and figure out how you relate to that and figure out what that means to you. And, and if you find, again, most people, 
Uh, you know, most people have no desire to get anywhere near that. And I, I fully understand that. But if you are someone who enjoys that, then I've got to think that part of what you enjoy is that kind of uncomfortable, sort of eerie, unsettling feeling of being in that world. I mean, for people who don't know, the, the, one of the things that happened with, with, with black metal as opposed to death metal is often the recordings were kind of smudgy and lo-fi. You know, in, in death metal, you had this love of virtuosity sometimes and really kind of complicated guitar lines and 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 really precise playing, especially the rhythm sections. And whereas black metal tends to be sort of smudgy, sometimes like the traditional stuff, kind of lo-fi. So you can't quite tell exactly what's happening. And sometimes it sounds more like you're overhearing some weird ritual as opposed to like getting blasted in the face the way you would by, by death metal. So yeah, part of the, you know, there is a, a real eeriness that is there in the music. I mean, I should say, like the metal tradition, you know, it's kind of inaugurated by Black Sabbath, I guess, right? That's that's certainly the, the foundational band. And Black Sabbath's whole thing was that they're kind of like using some semi-satanic imagery and there was this idea that there was a sense of evil somehow around this but it was maybe like a little bit like they were play acting and Ozzy Osbourne always said like no we're not really Satanists and so in that sense this genre like black metal is just taking the metal thing to its logical conclusion right like what would it mean for music to actually be evil not just like playing it evil not just you know oh this song's about blood but like what does it mean and what does it feel like to listen to music where you're like, I think the guy who made this might actually be evil. And, you know, there's a there's countless ways that music can give you a thrill, but that's one of them. Well said. And now we're going to switch gears pretty abruptly, but let's jump into R&B. And the quote I'm going to throw at you is you said, R&B can never quite decide whether it wants to be the universal sound of young America, a.k.a. Barry Gordy's sales pitch for Motown or black people's best kept secret are both at once untangle well i mean i think this is a this is an issue that you hear a lot in discussions about black music sometimes from black musicians themselves which is this 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 notion of crossing over this was something that barry gordy was obsessed with when he was making those motown records in the 60s like in his mind if it went to the top of the r&b chart that was good, but what he wanted to do was get to the top of the pop chart because he wanted, he loved this idea that like everyone's listening to his records. And, you know, for black musicians, often there has been a sense that like by making black music, sometimes you are categorized or relegated to this world of black music. Um, in fact, the R&B chart in the early 1980s was renamed uh, black singles instead of R&B singles. Um, and, you know, as a way to maybe to acknowledge that the music, like much of our society, was literally segregated. And so for some black musicians, that has been um, that's been something they've really struggled with, you know. Um, Luther Vandross always said that he really wanted a number one pop hit and, and he never got one. And that was that was disappointing to him. And it probably uh, affected him financially. Right. You, you make a lot more money if you're selling, if you're making number one pop hits than if you're making number one R&B hits. Right. If you're if your audience is is mainly black listeners, that's, you know, 12, 13 percent of the country. And that's a much smaller market. Um, at the same time, you, you've seen um, black singers be and black performers sometimes be self-conscious if they are thought of as too pop. You think of Whitney Houston, who gets called soon after she emerges the prom queen of soul, 
which was a, a, a kind of a compliment and an insult at the same time. And there was this perception um, that Whitney Houston was somehow too pop. She wasn't R&B enough. Um, so there's this famous incident where she was booed at the Soul Train Awards. And so, and, and in fact, at a certain point in her career, her and, and Clive Davis, the, the the producer she was, who uh, who who kind of discovered her, um, they worked to make her more R and B, work with R and B producers to try and get her onto R and B radio. And so again, it's it's this paradox where sometimes black artists have to figure out, you know, which they want or which is worse. Um, and again, if you think of if you think of um, if you think of genres as communities, this maybe is easier to understand why, on the one hand, to be kept out of the sort of pop mainstream world can feel like segregation. It can feel, you know, it, it can feel like you're not getting these opportunities because of your identity. At the same time, to feel as if you're locked out of R&B or not truly part of the R&B community can also be enormously frustrating. And, and, and so that's something that, you know, different uh, black artists have reckoned with in different ways, that, that sense of looking out into the audience and figuring out who's in my audience. And, and you know, there's a, I talk in the book about how Marvin Gaye once said that he didn't want to spend his life like singing R&B songs for these screaming fans. He wanted to be, you know, wearing a tuxedo at the, at some supper club singing for white Republicans. Right. Like the idea is like that. <laughs> the dream. That's what, yeah, but that's what success would be. And that's how you really get money. And that's how you really get respect. That's and true. That this, R&B tra- that this R&B tradition is somehow less, um, less exalted, you know, less financially rewarding. Maybe it's harder work. And whereas other performers have also taken pride in that. And he said that there is something, there is something to be proud of this idea that you're, you're making music for quote unquote, your people. And, and so, you know, that's something that is always part of the discussion with black audiences, with black artists. It's one thing to say that you want black artists to be celebrated by everyone because they make great music, but in America, Right. <laughs> Being celebrated by everyone would mean having an audience that's, you know, whatever, 58 percent white, whatever the country is. And so what does it mean as a black artist to have a majority white audience? Um, you know, that's something that generations have thought about differently. And you get to a, a, a something that changed in our era, although we might be post this era already. But you talk about the beatification of the living Beyonce, which came Beyonce. at a time. When something odd was happening, R&B was coming prestigious. And I'm not going to bring up your, your review when you said uh, the solo Beyonce, she's no Ashante. She's Actually, no Ashanti. I just words that brought were it up. In infamy. <laughs> <laughs> but people can Google that because it's uh, and you tell that story really well in the book. Um, but this thing to me, the beatification of Beyonce and Jay-Z as well, they're kind of the national pop culture couple. They double dated with Barack and Michelle, basically, and right. and yeah. you know, and the White House. To me, that was kind of tied to the the Obama presidency. How has that held up through the Trump and now the Biden eras? Well, that's an interesting question. I think I think there certainly was there certainly was at the a, 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 an idea of triumph, right? An idea that like this music that has been maybe underground hasn't gotten the respect it it deserves has has kind of hit the mainstream right and and there was a, certainly a moment of excitement and of hope in the in the obama era but but you know one of the things at this point i think it's you know musically beyonce has kind of eclipsed jay-z in terms of like how popular her records are right and but i think that one of the things that beyonce has always been really good at is 
figuring out what's going on in the culture and in music and incorporating that in a way that feels in a way that doesn't feel forced, that doesn't feel fake. Right. So, uh, you know, in the in the beginning of her career with with Destiny's Child, she's like not talking about politics. And they played like an inauguration party for George W. Bush, you know, later in the Beyonce era, she's talking about, you know, feminism more explicitly. Um, she's talking about black culture more explicitly and black musical traditions, you know, black historically black colleges, black marching bands, hip hop. And she's and in fact, in the in the post Obama years, the, the Beyonce's music has started to feel more and more underground. Right. Her most recent album, which comes out um, after I wrote this book, you know, is is partly a, a house music record. It's drawing drawing heavily and explicitly from black and queer dance music traditions. And so in that sense, you could see that as an example of Beyonce kind of going back, going underground a little bit. This person who had been totally mainstream hanging out with the president is now more thinking of herself maybe as part of the resistance or part of a resistance. Well said. And now I'm going to cue what we're going to talk about next because I'm going to cue Brad Paisley's Waiting on a Woman. And that was Brad Paisley's Waiting on a Woman. You can hear uh, the late Andy Griffith in there, actually. And I, I like my country mawkish. And again, I hadn't listened to Brad Paisley before this. I might have when I interviewed Chris Gow, actually. But thank you for for hipping me to Brad Paisley. I enjoyed that uh, quite a bit. But you already you already touched on one of your big points about country. So I'm not going to go back. I'm going to restate it, but not going to ask you about it again. But you say it's more old fashioned than rock and roll, but less traditional. And you already talk about that yeah. the way that the instruments change a lot. But you had another thing you said. You said the genre still hasn't recovered from the shock of Elvis Presley. I mean, 60 plus years later. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because, uh, you know, one of the things that Elvis did was Elvis was, you know, hit, you know, he's, he's this white Southern guy. So he's kind of hitting that demographic. But, you know, he's hip. He's doing something new. And and so ever since Elvis, there has been this idea that, like, the kids all across country are like listening to this new music right pop music rock music later hip-hop music and that by comparison country music would seem a little maybe it's for old folks or it's a little tame compared to this other stuff right and i think that was true in the rock and roll era and it's true now when i listen to my local country station um uh, in in new york state you know the 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 little news briefs about artists will be like so-and-so just got a new puppy. You know, it's like, it's like going back to an earlier era of America and then you turn into like a hip hop station or a pop station and it's just insanity, right? In terms of like what's yeah. going on in personal lives, there is still a sense of decorum in, in country music and the sense that things are going to just in general going to be a little less wild than they are in other parts of popular music. There's going to be, you know, it, it, things are starting to change where every now and then an artist might curse a little bit 
but it still is a pretty, you know, small C conservative genre in terms of its sensibility. And often what that has meant is that country music seems less hip than other genres. It's often been described as corny compared to compared to other genres. And and sometimes that's been an asset. Um, some of the executives in country music were talking in the early 90s about how the rise of grunge and gangster rap were a godsend for country music because there was all these boomer listeners who didn't want to listen to grunge or gangster rap, and they were gravitating towards Garth Brooks because it was more like the kind of pop and rock songs that they had grown up on, right? So in that sense, that can be, you know, that can be an asset. And at other times, it can seem like country music is really not in the conversation. Even now, where sometimes it feels as if different genres are all mixed up, you know, you have country singers that make big hits. Um, you know, one of my favorite songs of the year was uh, Damn Straight by Scotty McCreary. Number one country song, like zero profile in the world of popular music. Like if you're, if you're not a country fan, you, as you have no idea that this song even exists. And so in that sense, it really does live in its own world even now. And, and, and often, there's a couple exceptions, but often, you know, a lot of these, these big country records really don't exist or compete in the world beyond country music. And so sometimes it can feel as if the genre was a little bit left behind. And sometimes the genre is self-conscious about that, about scrambling to keep up and to say like, we can be modern too. We can, we can do drum machines. We can do other stuff. So there definitely is a conversation that way, but you know, that, that's something that I, yes, I would trace all the way back to the, to the days of Elvis. But at the same time, you point out that country has actually possibly done a better job than say rock of absorbing hip hop into its elements. I mean, it hasn't, it didn't have the whole thing where EDM took over the background of it, like it did with pop and, and virtually every other genre 10 years ago. But it has absorbed hip hop. I think, you know, rock kind of tried to absorb hip hop via new metal, but the, the, the hatred against new metal speaks, I think as to how well that succeeded. Um, and I'm kind of forgiving new metal, coming, but uh, coming back, coming back a little bit, but um, it is. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah, Vane and bands like that are, um, are are bringing back some of that new metal feel. But no, I I think well one difference is that rock tends to be defined in musical terms. In other words, what makes you rock is that you have this instrumentation or this sound. Country music is often defined in cultural terms. There is a country music audience, and the genre sounds like whatever those people are into, and that in an odd way gives it a little more musical freedom. Because it means that if you resonate with those people, you can still be country, even if you're using not just electric guitars, but if you're even if you're using programmed drums and sequencers and rapping a little bit, if those people are into it, it could still be a country song. I, I talked a couple of years ago to Morgan Wallen, who's you know maybe one of the biggest country stars of the moment, and he told me that he didn't really grow up listening to that much country music. He grew up listening to like Nickelback and like new rock bands like that in the in the two thousands. And he was like, yeah, but when I started singing my own songs, it just kind of came out country. And and he's a good example of someone where his um, musically, he's drawn from all sorts of stuff. He's a guy that really loves hip hop. Um, certainly he loves rock. He's got loud electric guitars in his stuff. He's got, you know, 808 sounding kick drums on some of his tracks. Um, and yet his cultural identity is really strong and his cultural identity makes him in that sense 
unimpeachably country. And, and, you know, I, I went to see him launch his tour at the at Madison Square Garden here in New York. And, you know, so the music is drawn from all sorts of stuff. It's kind of hybrid. At that point, he had a track out with Lil Durk, like a hip hop collaboration. And yet the, the sense in the crowd is that there is this strong cultural identity of being very country. People were chanting either USA or let's go Brandon between songs because there was this oh. idea that this is like a tribal thing. Like we're with our people. This is like a real country show. And so in an odd way, that cultural and sometimes even political identity has given the genre a little more freedom to explore different things musically. And, and I would say sometimes you see the opposite in country music too. Sometimes you see, sometimes the people that are the most committed to using traditional like string band instrumentation, right? Like bluegrass or just people using mandolins and banjos and pedal steel, absolutely no absolutely no electronics, right? Sometimes those are the people where the cultural identification with country music is less strong, right? That could be a hipster in Brooklyn singing about whatever. And the thing that makes them country is the music, is the instruments, is, is the, is the, is the um, arrangement. So often with music, there is this kind of push pull where the more you look or act the part, the more freedom you have to depart from the script. Well said, well said. Let's take a break from our sponsor. When we come back, we'll talk about punk. All right, so punk. So we're about the same age. You identify as punk first. I identify as punk first. And yet when I saw the book and that you had the seven genres, my inclination was to take a Sharpie and mark out punk. <laughs> like I see it as a, as a subset of rock and roll. But I'm going to throw your quote back at you because I think you make a pretty good case as to why it's here and why it's different than rock. Um, punk helped enshrine the idea that pop culture was a split between a vacuous mainstream and a worthy underground or, quote, alternative. Elaborate. Yeah, so this idea, I mean, you know, it's there in rock and roll. And yes, of course, in some sense, punk is a subgenre of rock and roll, though I think um, the rock and roll chapter is already the longest chapter in the book. So um, <laughs> that was one reason to split punk <laughs> into its own chapter. But the other was that punk is influential as a way of looking at the world even more than music. In other words, like there's plenty of people that don't care for the Sex Pistols and never will, but many of them have nevertheless um, internalized this idea that there's something righteous, full of integrity and fire and fury happening in the underground and that the mainstream is kind of corrupt or kind of lame or kind of boring, right? And that's the central idea of punk. And in fact, it's spread you know, punk punk starts uh, begets hardcore punk, right, in the U.S., which is shortened to hardcore, and then that suffix core, like, um, is much more popular than the genre itself, right? Mumblecore, normcore, right? All these different cores, and core means is a way of referring to sort of like an underground culture. And similarly, with punk, you know, punk kind of gives rise to college rock, which is known as alternative rock and then that alt prefix you know you get alt hip-hop alt country and again all of this is built on this very punk idea that there is something cooler better more pure happening in the underground and so that you know that ends up being is now like a central idea of culture and 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 all sorts of stuff comes from that that people don't necessarily even trace back to punk and also for me like as you say, punk was my gateway into music. Punk is the reason I care about music in the first place. And punk 
you know, the idea of punk being grounded in defiance and rebellion, that was all I cared about for, for most of my high school years and, and, and some of my college years, too. And as I started thinking about it more and more, um, I started wondering, like, what does that mean? What does it mean to be loyal to a genre that's built on defiance and rebellion, right? Isn't that, aren't, aren't you in some way betraying the spirit of punk by saying that, I'm only interested in music that is rebellious in this specific way. Like, aren't there other ways for music to be rebellious? I remember seeing a show, I write about it in the book by uh, Bounty Killer, the dance hall reggae artist. And, it, you know, he did like, I don't know, 25 tracks in 20 minutes and he's a screaming audience somewhere at, at the converted converted gym somewhere. And it was just, it was insanity. And I remember seeing that show and being like, whoa, this is way more punk than punk could ever be. And, and it made me realize that these values that, that punk espouses, you can hear them and find them other places. And in fact, in fact, even in music that seems to be the opposite of punk, you know, that seems to be a kind of a radical break with the ethos of punk, like, you know, like commercial country music. Well, what could be more punk than a radical break? What could be what could be more punk than breaking entirely with the traditions of punk rock? And so, you know, th that's the sense in which it, it never really left me. And, and punk kind of taught me to hear some of those same qualities, you know, whether it's rebellion, whether it's audacity, or whether it's the opposite, whether it's the, the pleasures of smoothness, the pleasures of complicity. It, it really did rearrange the way I hear the whole musical world. Yeah, and your and your um, use of the alt dots, you know, it's saying alt hip hop, alt alt country, and as you point out, you know, you really kind of savage on Americana, which I am too, so <laughs> that's fine. But um, I, I figured out that's a classic I, I like, with I, me. Well, I like I like some of the music, but yeah, the, uh, me too. The, the ethos, uh, the idea. I mean, I feel somewhat similarly about some of the like underground hip hop. The starting point that like what's happening in the mainstream is actually bad. Um, that's just never really sat right with me because I love the mainstream stuff too. And also one of my musical, I don't want to say it's a blind spot exactly, but you know, I like a wide variety of music, but one of the things I often have trouble with is music that is self-consciously retro. Whenever people start, you know, using antiquated slang and wearing antiquated hats, I get um, a little bit suspicious. And so, um, so yes. We've got so some Scott fans all, listening, have, so easy. We all have musical prejudices, and that's one of mine. No, Scott, I mean, Scott is something I didn't, Scott was, is something I didn't have time to get super into in the book. But another example of how music is so often cyclical, right? There's some great Scott bands now, like We Are the Union is one of the better ones, I think. And, uh, yeah, this is, so the, the return of Scott is, and the Eichlers, of course. Um, yes, I'm excited about the return of Scott. Don't get me wrong. And and I want to throw one last quote about punk, though, um, that you say one of the reasons people are so down on hipsters is that hipsters do not form a community and the hipster identity conveys little sense of belonging. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm trying to in the book, I, I say that I kind of want to um, <clears throat> I want to reclaim the term a little bit, the H word, um, <laughs> the same way people have reclaimed some other terms, just to say, you know, <laughs> If hipster is this hipster is this kind of grab bag that points that pointed especially in the 2000s when it sort of this idea took over people who like you know lived in cities often and maybe they had opinions about denim and they were into various kinds of music and they drank fancy coffee or whatever and like you know when I think about it that way like I don't know that there's anything necessarily so wrong with that. I, again, I, I think that I think that people react negatively to the term because the idea is that you're that being a hipster 
it's not specific enough, right? It's not like saying like, oh, I'm obsessed with dance music. I'm obsessed with, I'm only into hip hop. I'm obsessed with punk. Like there's a certain amount of pride in those identities in the 90s, those more tribal identities. And so there was this idea that in the 2000s, everything had gotten a little flabby and there was just this undifferentiated mass of hipsters. Um, and, you know, any, any identity that, any identity that is, is always bad, that is, that is wielded as an insult, is going to be interesting to me for that matter, uh, for that reason. And often people find a way to reclaim that, right? You think about the way the word redneck is used in country music, where at one point it was an insult, and now it's something that people, you know, think about Gretchen Wilson, redneck woman, famously, but uh, others too, the people reclaim with pride. So yes, I did, uh, you know, half jokingly wonder if whether hipsters could uh, reclaim that term with pride too. Yeah, and some people maybe could blame Napster for that, that that once we switched to listening to music on our iPods and it was just a big shuffle. And and then there's also the whole indie rock thing, that like how excited can you be about being into the shins? And I love the shins, but you know what I mean. Um, Steph tells me it's yeah. time to cue, though. So I'm going to hint our next transition. This is Juice yeah. World, Lucid Dreams. And that was the late Juice World with Lucid Dreams, which kind of fits into the punk category, kind of fits into our next category, which is hip hop. And, um, yes. you know, and I, I don't want to get sidetracked with the whole emo rap thing, but I've, I've been fascinated with those guys ever since I noticed none of them were making the 27 Club. <laughs> they were sadly, you know, yeah. dying. Yeah. I mean, and this is a tradition in music, right? You think about, the, you know, the original, you know, the original time where, where this happens in rock and roll, where right? Janis Joplin and Jimi Hendrix and uh, Jim Morrison. Um, you think about in hip hop where, where Tupac dies in 96 and, and Notorious B.I.G. Is, is killed in 1997. And then, yes, in this wave of emo rap, the, the, the deaths of the, the kind of the big three, Triple X, Tentacion, Juice World, and Lil Peep, you know, ironically helps push this stuff further into the mainstream. And it's this, you know, it's this mixture of, of, of a kind of a, a hip hop aesthetic, an emo driven aesthetic. It's very druggy, right? It, it represents the sort of, you know, it's, it's music that um, definitely speaks to, you know, the, the rise of opiates and opioids in America and, and reflecting that in the, both in the music and in some cases in the deaths of the artists sadly that make the music and so you know this is one of the great things that popular music can do can can reflect what's actually happening in the world and i think you know one of the strengths of hip-hop you know from its inception till now and beyond is that it keeps changing and juice world is a great example juice world as a figure this kind of like emo fan from i think suburban chicago who, you know, who then it turns out to be like a great rapper too, but also like an impressive songwriter and has this short but incredibly successful and influential career. You know, there had never been a hip hop star like Juice World before Juice World. And even five or 10 years before, it would have been hard for people to wrap their minds around like, well, this is like maybe the big hip hop star of the year. And, and the fact that hip hop keeps changing is, is related to the fact that 
people tend to be a little frustrated by the way it changes, right? And every phase in the development of hip hop, which I consider like maybe the greatest genre of all time, um, in every phase of its development, there've been people who say like, this music, it doesn't sound as good as it used to. It's not what it used to be. And I think scientifically it's been determined that the peak of hip hop, the moment when it was at its best is whenever you were in high school. I think that that's um, usually often how it works. And, and the fact is that for most of us, hip hop no longer sounds the way it sounded when we were in high school. And, And again, I think, I think that's one of the great strengths of the genre. And you've got another bit where you compare it with jazz and you say hip hop may be the quintessential modern American art form. And I'm like, oh, boy, you're channeling the late Stanley Crouch here. Um, (laughs) But you say the great the country's greatest cultural cultural contribution to the world and yet a guilty pleasure. And then you elaborate another point. It said, I don't think the status of jazz was any reason for jealousy. I was grateful hip hop had been protected from institutionalization by its stubborn vulgarity and its abiding failure to become respectable elaborate yeah yeah i mean i think so this is the thing right like people had seen the how jazz evolved and often there's a a a dynamic relationship between popularity and respectability right like often when a, a genre is at its most popular it's not so respectable and then as it fades in popularity it gets more respectable right and and jazz is you know lives partly now in nonprofit institutions and educational institutions and the Smithsonian and Lincoln Center and at, at the same time it's you know no longer you know, it's, it's not it's not defined as popular music, right? And structurally, it exists as something maybe almost closer to a modern American classical music. Um, and so with hip hop, it seemed like maybe that would happen. I mean, when hip hop first came out, it was novelty music, right? It was it was, it was Sugar Hill Gang, it was Blondie doing Rapture, and some of the early stars were groups like the Fat Boys. Like it was, people thought it was ridiculous. And then a few years later, you get the rise of gangster rap, and now instead of being ridiculous, this genre is scary, or it's bad, or it's criminal, or something else. And so all along, it's had one, had a negative reputation of some kind or another. People, whenever I hear people saying something about hip-hop now, I sometimes try to remind them, there has never been a time in the history of hip-hop where the nation's elite, right, whether that be cultural, academic elite, leading politicians, have gotten together and looked at hip-hop and said, like, oh, this music's great. You guys are doing a great job. It's a great genre. <laughs> what a wonderful thing. Like, that's never, it didn't happen in the Run DMC era. It didn't happen in the Jay-Z era. It's not happening now. So, and, and I think that maybe that is related to the fact that this music is still so vibrant and still speaks often to these neighborhoods um, that are, you know, categorized by segregation, by poverty, by violence, these neighborhoods um, that feel in some ways cut off from the rest of society. These are places where hip hop really resonates. And, uh, you know, I wrote, a, I wrote a piece for the magazine earlier this year about the drill music in New York, which is like the latest iteration of so-called gangster rap. And, you know, Obviously, um, obviously, the fact that people are being shot and killed in New York, in the streets of New York, is terrible, right? If we could, if we could do something to prevent that, I think all of us, even those of us who love the music, would. But that said, so long as that's happening, it's really valuable and even exciting to me that in those worlds, there is this devotion still to what is basically poetry, 
that people who are living these lives at the same time, it's really important them to be like, I also want to record poetry to tell you what my life is like. And, and so it's always felt to me like a great privilege to be living in a time, not only when hip hop exists, but where it is thriving and popular, you know, among a demographic that maybe is not having the opportunity to go to a liberal arts college and is otherwise left out of the conversation, hip hop is a way to, even now, even in 2022, hip hop is a way to hear from people that you might not otherwise get to hear from. And I think that's related though, to this other thing that where hip hop is sometimes described as, you know, Chuck D once called it a, you know, CNN for black America. And so there has been this idea that like hip hop is where you can go to hear the truth. And I would also want to resist that idea. In other words, the, the, the hip hop, these people are telling you the truth, because I think that that can be diminishing or flattening to the art form, right? Like any other art form, hip hop is not just truth. Hip hop is lies and jokes and BS and exaggeration and fantasy and everything else. And, and, and I think that I think that that's important. Um, that's important to recognize, too. It's a, obviously it's a very funny tradition. The most popular rappers have often been some of the funnier rappers. And I think that all those things help explain why it's lasted as long as it has and why it is so far kept um, kept respect, uh, respectfulness, respectedness at bay. You know, there's been moments, right? Kendrick Lamar wins the Pulitzer Prize. You know, Hamilton goes to the White House. There's been moments where you're like, oh, it's getting a little more respectable. But then at the end of the day, you know, a lot of the most important figures in the world of hip hop are, you know, Kodak Black or NBA Youngboy or, you know, Megan Thee Stallion or people, people that come from a slightly different world and that are making music that still is in the kind of rough and tumble of hip hop as it has traditionally existed. And let's do our last cue now. This is Post Malone. Congratulations. Sunset shit done changed Ever since we was on I dreamed it all Ever since I was young They said I won't be nothing Now they always say congratulations Worked so hard Forgot how to vacation They ain't never had the dedication People hating say we changing Look we made it Yeah we made it That was never friendly yeah, now I'm jumping out of band, yeah, and I know I sound dramatic, yeah, but I know I had to have it, yeah, for the money in my side. And that was Post Malone, congratulations. And I had a whole segue to go into dance, but now I played a song from the pop section, so I'm, I'm struggling with which one to do next. <laughs> I'm going to stick, stick with my order and I go with dance. We're getting all mixed up. <laughs> Every plan works until you get punched in the face. But um, the okay. the... So dance, though, like you point out that hip hop, as long as it stays close to the to the black community, the the the, the underclass of the black community, it's it's got this vitality. And dance is another genre that needs to stay connected to its community, which is the community of the dance floors. And you've got a great quote from Nile Rogers about it. He says, "It's I discovered a fledgling counterculture lifestyle, even more expressive, political, and communal than the hippie movement in the '60s." and you, then you say that dance music began as party music. More than hip-hop, it has remained party music, and parties are ephemeral. Elaborate. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, this is the thing about dance music is that it's, as a writer, this is something I've always enjoyed about it, is it's hard to write about, right? Like, it's most of these, often it's more about grooves than about lyric. And, you know, all of the great events in dance music are parties about a vibe and this person, this person DJed for five hours and it was incredible, but it's somehow hard to put into words. And so I think, um, you know, I think for that reason, sometimes it gets short shrift. 
even as in the years after disco and the rise of house and techno, which are born in Chicago and Detroit, respectively, it has created really like a worldwide movement, a worldwide, I guess you could call it an underground, partly because it's not lyric driven. It crosses borders more easily than some other kinds of music, right? If you're a great house or techno DJ from some other part of the world, you can play parties in any major city on the planet and there'll be people who love dance music and love listening to what you're doing. So there, there is a, 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 there's something universal about it, but also the fact that it resists some of the most basic stuff that we love about music, right? We love lyrics. We love choruses. And, and there's something radical about the way in the world of dance music, there is this, this, this tradition of saying like, no, it's not about the lyrics. We might have lyrics sometimes, but that's not what it's about. It's not about chorus. It's about the groove. It's about, it's about listening to something, not just for three minutes. It's about listening to music for two hours or something. It's about moving. And that's very traditional. I say that, you know, for most of human history, dance music might've seemed redundant, right? This is what music was for. But it, so it's a very traditional thing, but it, it, it is also it is also tradition that exists, you know, at some at some distance from mainstream popular music, and that it, it's kind of even now it has this double identity of being hugely popular, all hugely popular all over the world, but also kind of existing in a world of its own. And and my hope certainly with that chapter, that's the chapter that I assume. I imagine there'll be lots of people who read this book who don't necessarily know the difference between house and techno and aren't particularly interested in listening to a DJ at two in the morning. And my hope is that even or especially for those people, it, you know, it could be fun and enlightening to just learn something about how this world works and why it exists. And, and maybe it's one of those things where sometimes having a different world illuminated for you can maybe help you understand more about the world that you inhabit. Yeah, I mean, that's part of the reason I came in. When I started doing this series, I was a total dance virgin. Not total, but I had I'd never paid attention. And a lot of it's because there wasn't the body of literature to read uh, to get yeah. the cheat notes. Yeah. Um, or I wasn't hip enough to find Mixmag and the things that I did find out people were writing about it later. But mm -hmm. but you point out, and, and this is one of the reasons I think uh, dance music has survived its massive takeover of America uh, about 10 years ago is that you say the thing that's kept dance music separate from the mainstream is not its sound, but its philosophy. By insisting that tracks are more important than songs, disco and its descendants continually weed out the dilettantes who only want to sing along. And what you don't say is because it's for dancers, <laughs> people who yeah. want to dance. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's right. And, and if you have anything to add, you can add, but I, I also want to get on to pop. So uh, your call there. Yeah, I mean, I just want to say, like, biographically, I had the same issue that you had, which is when I was trying to learn about dance music in the 90s. I mean, my stumbling block, I was like, great, what album should I buy? And people were like, well, exactly. no. And, and, and now, I, I just should say, like, now it's the opposite. Now dance music is, like, some of the easiest music to hear because so many of these DJ sets and, and live PAs are recorded. So you can go to SoundCloud or you can go where and like listen to a two hour recorded DJ set from any time in history. And so for people that are curious about this music, it's actually gotten a lot easier to do the research. Absolutely. And also one of the things that I didn't realize, but now is so obvious that 
listening to a good DJ is a lot like listening to a great jazz performer or a Grateful Dead show. Every show is going to be different. Yep. You have to hear it. And, yep. the, you know, the closer you are to the moment, the better. But you can still get a lot of excitement and, and you know, inspiration from listening to these recorded improvisations. So it, it's it's fascinating to yeah. me on that. But let's move and on to pop. There's a kind of... Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Pop. Go ahead and finish. Genre and... Well, no, I was going to say there, there's something – it can also really help you hear music differently, right? If you're listening to like a really minimalist techno set and you find yourself like thinking about the sound of the kick drum for, you know, for, for 20 minutes, it's a little <laughs> bit like minimalist art where you can it, can it can force you or can lead you toward focusing on something that you might not focus on if you were listening to uh, pop music. A term, a pop music, a term which it's not even clear that that's a genre at all, right? Yeah, absolutely. And and so now we've got pop, the big mystery of pop. And you say, in one sense, contemporary pop is hip by definition. Pop is what's in style. That's what makes it pop. In another sense, though, popularity and hipness are forever in tension because you can't possibly keep ahead of the teeming masses by listening to the same music as them. <laughs> True. And, and I think, you know, I kind of trace this history where in the 60s, pop is a kind of catch-all term. It's like all the stuff the kids are listening to, and the Beatles are pop, and Rolling Stones are pop, and the Supremes are pop. Um, and in the 70s, increasingly, you see pop being used um, as an insult. And pop is the stuff that doesn't have a home in a genre, right? Like the Carpenters are pop because they're not rock and roll. You used to be a country singer and then you went pop and you left country behind. You used to be R&B and now you're just pop. So it kind of becomes an insult in the 70s. And then I argue that in the 80s, for the first time, pop becomes a genre. It becomes, it becomes a flag that people are willing to wave. I talk about this cohort of, of musicians in England, Boy, Boy George and a bunch of people like that, who were kind of way in the aftermath of punk. They're saying like, no, punk is boring. In fact, Rock and roll is boring. We're going to be not rock and roll. We're going to be pop. And we're going to be pop with a capital P. And, and so I think even, I think in the 80s, you also get this sound, this post-disco sound, this kind of electronic pop music sound that even now is one thing that people think of when they think about pop music. I, I talk about um, Borderline by Madonna as like, it's like, to me, like the quintessential pop song. Like, I just, I love that song. That's a song that I think of when you think of pop music. And so even now when there's an artist, you know, sometimes not even a super popular artist. You think about Robin, the cult favorite from Sweden. When you say that Robin makes pop music, part of what you mean is that she sounds a little bit like 80s Madonna. And so there is a sense in which pop as a genre gets kind of defined or maybe even frozen a little bit in the 80s and that's often what people mean when they're talking about pop and of course now you have something like hyper pop and the idea is that hyper pop takes some of the signifiers of pop music and scrambles them or intensifies or exaggerates them so that they're not pop at all anymore yeah and i, w- I was a little disappointed because i've been working on this hobby horse that w- the moment when barry gibb produced barbara streisand i think of the album guilty uh, to me, uh-huh. that's the birth of modern pop. Although I agree also with Boy George and, and his moment. That, and they're separate traditions. I, I know that Boy George was not taking his cues from Barry, uh, Barry Gibbon, Barbara <laughs> Streisand. But, you know, but I, I see that as that moment when the disco production met up with somebody like Barbara Streisand, who was an old school Broadway yeah. uh, style performer. Um, and that, but, was the cool, that was the cool thing about disco was that or the, the upside and the downside was that like 
everyone could jump on this wagon, right? And like Star Wars makes a disco record. And obviously the Bee Gees are disco, but like Rolling Stones have a disco record. And there's a fifth of Beethoven and there's all this stuff. And often these moments of pop triumph are moments of people coming together across genre borders. And often those moments create backlashes that certainly we saw with disco. Absolutely. And then there's another point, though, that this is something I've been coming close to on this series and haven't put it into words. And you put it into words brilliantly. I said, you say, we should stop discounting the opinions of contemporaneous listeners. There is no reason why a broad but evanescent popularity must necessarily count for less than a narrower, more durable sort of enthusiasm. Elaborate. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's the punk rocker in me. Right. People are always especially in my line of work. You know, people would always talk about like, well, which songs are going to stand the test of time? And I would always think like, what's so great about standing the test of time? Like, why do we I I think that um, certainly if you talk to someone who was alive in the 1960s, they will tell you the ways in which subsequent decades have distorted our ideas about what the 60s were actually like. And. Of course, right? When you think about it that way, like, of course, like time is going to distort, is always going to have that distorting effect. Or in, in, any, in any way, at any rate, over time, the way we think about things is going to change. And so it seems a little perverse to me to say that, like, oh, in 2042, we'll really understand what things were like in 2022, the way we don't now. Um, uh, and, and maybe the opposite is, the, is, is true, right? Maybe we understand you know, no one will ever understand what it's like to be alive in 2022 the way we do right now. I, I suggest in the songs in the book that uh, I talk about songs like um, Rude by Magic, right? A, a, a big hit from whenever it was, five years ago, maybe a little more, um, a Canadian reggae band um, that didn't have subsequent hits in America. And, and, and songs like that, that are everywhere for a little while and then just seem to sort of like fade away a little bit. Um, uh, and I suggested maybe, maybe songs like that, maybe we think of them the way we think about dying languages. And, and one day the last native enjoyer of that song will die. And, and the knowledge <laughs> of what it's like to love that song will be gone forever. And, and so I do think that, you know, the, the, the pop chapter is partly a chapter about what it means to listen to music, what it means to have opinions about music. It's kind of the most meta chapter, I think, fittingly. And so, yeah, what, th- that is one of the questions is, is, well, what are we doing when we have opinions about music? And, and what, are we, what, are we doing, what are we doing when we say that this thing that some people like is better than that thing that some other people like? And, and one way to think about that is, as you say, this question of, well, what does it mean for music to stand the test of time? Is that important? Why is that important? And if we, if we were going to have a radically pop-centric view of music, um, a view that celebrated big hits and sem- celebrated uh, the, the contemporaneous, then maybe that would mean celebrating songs that don't last. Well said. And, and that one gave me a lot to think about. And I've got three quotes from the end. I'm going to have to pick just one. And so I'm going to go with the one where you say that you loved punk because you didn't see yourself represented in it, at least not in some of the major yeah. identity categories that my biography might have suggested, black, brown skinned, biracial, African. It was thrilling to claim these alien bands and this alien movement as my own. Yes. I mean, I think there's a lot of we're living in a moment where people are fascinated by the power of representation, the power of seeing 
parts of your own identity reflected back to you in popular culture. And I think that is a true thing and that is a powerful thing, but I think it's important to recognize in music as elsewhere that that's not the only kind of power that exists. And that just as it can be powerful to, to love something that you feel like represents you, it can also really be powerful to love something that seems a little alien. And the idea that a, a piece of popular culture can give you, can invite you to enter into a world that in some ways feels very different from your own. Obviously, as people, when we jump into some other world, we're going to find something in there that reminds us of us in some way. But for me, you know, I have, there are people who listen to punk and they're like, these kids making these punk records, they're just like me and my friends. That was not my experience. When I, when I started listening to punk rock music, I was like, these people are insane. Like, what are they doing? <laughs> What's happening in their world? I remember the first hardcore show I went to was Fugazi at the Channel in South Boston. There were skinheads there. I'd never seen skinheads before. I was like, are these people going to murder me? Like, I actually have no idea. And that excitement, that fear, that confusion, that wonderment was, you know, was, was, was a feeling that I've never forgotten. And in, in some sense, I've been chasing ever since. And, you know, a good example of how there are many different ways that music can give us joy, many different ways that music can thrill us. And whenever we're in a moment when people are saying, music should do this, music should do that, music is good if it does this, that's when the punk rocker in me starts to rise up. And I say, wait a second, wait a second. That is a thing that music can do, but there's also lots of other things that music can do. And music can, you know, representation could be important to someone, but alienness can also be, and alienation can also be really important to listeners too. So I think it's, I think, I think it's useful to bear that in mind because if we don't, we'll lose sight of some of the ways in which music can be great. Well said. And my guest has been Califasana, and the book is Major Labels, A History of Popular Music in Seven Genres. Thanks so much for coming on the show. This has been great. Thanks. It's been so much fun. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Monday, Nate welcomes back Michelangelo Matos to discuss Prince, Madonna, Michael Jackson, and Pop's blockbuster year of 1984. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 